Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger viewers. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank with me, your faithful friend and servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Well, here we are, dear listener, at episode two. Uh, What happened once is an accident. What happens twice is on purpose, and what happens a third time is a habit. So, Here's to building good practice together. (laughs) For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together with original writing to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is about the spark of innovation. It's about how we represent ourselves, and it's about electricity. I took a walk yesterday evening, dear listener. My thoughts carried me down Walnut Street, past storekeepers closing their shops, smiths banking the coals of their forges, and hackney cabs lingering for their evening fares. Eventually, my feet bore me all the way to the banks of the Schuylkill River. I was reminded of a great many evenings spent on its banks— Layers of spring pollen commingled with muddy foam and ambient swirling patterns filming downstream and off in the western sky amidst the wash of pink and indigo. A herd of thunderclouds roamed lonely along the sky. A storm was on the horizon. I marvel often, dear listener, at the world and how much more of it we understand than ever before. Over the course of my life, I've been a lover of many things. Liberty, industry, ladies. But something that has captured my passions early in life and compelled a devotion over the fourscore years is science. Science shows us our place in the world. It calls us to better understand it with siren song. It tempts us with its questions, and it binds us with its laws. It had been a long-held belief of mine that the progress of human knowledge will be rapid, and just around the corner discoveries shall be made of which we at present have no conception. I have begun to be almost sorry I was born so soon. And since I cannot have the happiness of knowing what will be known a hundred years from now, or two hundred years hence, oh, dear listener, since no man may know his future, let us stick with the present and present our subject of the day, science. On this week's episode, we're going to speak a little upon the rise and progress of my scientific reputation. I suspect posterity may label me notorious for a great many things, Uh, my labors, both scientific and politic, not being accepted from that. It may surprise you, dear listener, to know that the variegated meat and matter that would enroll the name of Franklin into the annals of history would not be accomplished until well into my retirement. 
After my industrious vocation of printer had come to its well-earned close, there's a nugget of wisdom at the heart of that, dear listener, if you've a mind to pick it up. There is no limitation or expiration on the things you wish to accomplish, whether eight or eighty-seven. If one has the means to dream and scheme, and the initiative to set the plan in motion, it is never too late to accomplish one's ends. So you just put that in your pocket for a rainy day. Uh, but I digress, back to science. In 1748, in my 42nd year, I retired from my trade as printer. I turned over my operation to my then foreman, uh, Mr. David Hall, and in exchange for this partnership, I received a salary of some 650 pounds annually. In no modest amount, considering a, a common clerk would smile at the salary of 25 pounds a year. Now, arriving at such a state of comfort, I found myself at leisure to read and study and make experiments and converse at large with such ingenious and worthy people as are pleased to honor me with their friendship, such as yourself, dear listener. Now, five years before my retirement, I happened to find myself in the fair city of Boston and sought an evening's entertainment in the form of a traveling scientist, a Scotsman by the name of um, Spence. It was a common occurrence in my time for showmen to make tours through the various taverns and public houses, boasting the latest innovation or discovery. A great many of them were humbug. <laughs> Lectures on the lumps on men's heads playing oracle to their disposition, or a con man training his prized hog in a series of behaviors so as to make it appear that the pig could do basic ciphering and arithmetic. That's true, dear listener. Aristotle, the learned pig of knowledge, held somewhat of a celebrity in North America. Look it up. So, when I sat down for an evening with Archibald Spencer, it was for entertainment more than it was for edification of my intellect. Spence discussed Newton's theories of light, the movement of the blood, the humors, and also... He performed tricks using a certain type of material that was popularly tested, but minimally understood. They were imperfectly performed, as he was not very expert. But being a subject quite new to me, they equally surprised and pleased me. It was a phenomenon that positively held a powerful charge on my imagination, a pun you will discover very much intended. There is... Dear listener, an invisible, subtle matter disseminated through all nature in various forms, equally unobserved, and whilst all those bodies to which it peculiarly adheres are alike charged with it inoffensive, it is perhaps the most formidable and irresistible agent in the universe. Animals are in an instant struck breathless. Bodies almost impervious by any force yet known are perforated, and metals fused by it in a moment. I speak, of course, of electricity. It's important to note, electricity was a novelty of my time, its place perfectly suited for the showmen and scientific quacks that entertained the public spaces of colonial North America. Even after my experiments, electricity was thought a novelty of no great utilitarian purpose outside of the entertainment that might be garnered from stimulating shock, from making contact with something charged with electrical fire. 
like the demonstrations of Dr. Spencer during that fateful visit in Boston. However, after that evening, my scientific inclinations were anxious to discover if the phenomenon, in being better understood, might have some greater practical benefit to the world. And just a few short years after witnessing Mr. Spence's demonstrations, I began to practice my own experiments. I procured a Leyden jar, a file made to contain electrical fire, a very simplified and fundamental conductor. Now, I will not get into the minute as of yet, dear listener. The ends of this discussion is not to discuss my successes in the collection of electrical fire, but rather one particular blunder. Owning that mankind may often benefit from learning from the follies, foibles, and failings of history more than its innovations and victories. By my retirement, I never was before engaged in any study that so totally engrossed my attention and my time. Now, the infamous evening with the kite and the key was still two years away, and the budding theory that the lightning in the sky was the same electricity idly manipulated in my experiment was a simple spark in my imagination. When on a particular evening, in December of 1750, I would conduct an experiment that I never wished to repeat. I had devised several amusements with electricity at that point. E electric barbecues, where my friends and relations drank from electrified glasses, ate poultry prepared by electricity, played electrified games, and witnessed electric illuminations launched across the waters of the Schuylkill River. And the following Christmas... I decided to prepare our Christmas turkey in a similar fashion, hypothesizing that a death by electrocution was not only a more merciful means of slaughtering the bird, but it also did great service to tenderize the meat, while also providing a spectacle for the attendees of this particular Christmas fete. Well, there I was about to kill this poor, innocent turkey by the shock from two large glass jars uh, containing as much electrical fire as forty common vials, when I inadvertently took the hole through my arms and body by receiving the fire from the united top wires with one hand while the other held a chain connected to the two outside jars. There was a great flash within the room, and a crack not unlike thunder, I noticed none of this, being utterly stupefied by the full charge of the electrical fire. The first thing I took notice of was a violent, quick shaking of my body, which gradually, remitting my sense, gradually returned. You know, I suspect there were a great many of my attendees that thought I did it on purpose. Well, I don't wish to contradict them. But the only practical use for electricity that day, it seemed was to make a vain man humble. It was not enough to stave off my fascination with electricity, which I have no doubt we will revisit in time, but it was enough to swear me off turkeys, for at least some time. Some of my findings on the phenomenon of electricity would later travel across the Atlantic and make it all the way into the hands of the Royal Academy, men like the Abbe de Monet and George-Louis Leclerc, the Comte de Buffon. Oh, they hated it. It cannot be said whether the source of their antagonism was the radical nature of the discovery I proffered, or that these discoveries came from the mind of an American. 
There was a pervading sentiment, dear listener, among the armchair philosophers of the European continent regarding the general inferiority of the composition of flora, fauna, and the general natural order of the American continent. The inference was that this general impotence extended beyond animal and plant matter and into all aspects of the American identity. Needless to say, certain contemporaries of mine took particular umbrage at this, and made it their own personal mission to refute these scientific libels by gathering evidence of the exceptionalism of American wildlife. Chief amongst them was Messrs. Jefferson and Madison, who made great occupation of collecting evidence to garner the grandeur of American wildlife. Now, you can learn more about this by looking into Thomas Jefferson and the bull moose. Look it up. I understand there was even a short while where James Madison kept a family of opossums in his home, bolstering their health to survive the journey across the Atlantic, wishing to use these animals' uniqueness, not only in size, but in possession of a pouch to forward Jefferson's thesis. I imagine this had great secondary use for the young James Madison. He, being a very diminutive fellow, he likely found great utility. When in times of great stress or fatigue, he could climb into the possum's pouch to take a nap. <laughs> uh, don't tell him I said that. Uh, getting back to my point, the native animals of America at that time garnered a sort of zeal. The moose, the possum, the mastodon or incognitum theorized to be in the western boundaries of North America, and of course, the faithful turkey. Now, on the subject of turkeys. Some sentiments I have shared in private correspondence have often been misinterpreted so as to make it appear that I believe the turkey stands a better model for our national symbol than its unscrupulous and conniving cousin, the bald eagle. But don't mistake me. Eagles are wretched birds, and I'm convinced have benefited in reputation over other birds simply by the possession of better PR representatives but I digress. I'm not about to fall down the rabbit hole regarding the popularity or marketability of birds. From our very beginnings as a nation, we have struggled with how best to represent ourselves. A nation of states, all fixed with their own national character, is a complex thing to distill into a fixed set of principles, thoughts, sentiments, and symbols. This is as true for the foundation of America as it is for the modern day. I promise, dear listener, this is all germane to the subject of turkeys. Uh, fresh off the heels of our Declaration of Independence, a committee was composed of Messrs. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and yours truly. We were charged with establishing a seal for the fledgling United States of America, a symbol. It was a mess of a thing, nearly as difficult as formulating a unified continental sentiment established in our Declaration. Mr. Adams detailed some of the initial thoughts in a letter to his wife, dated the 14th of August, 1776, and I quote, Dr. Franklin proposes a device for a seal, Moses lifting up his wand, dividing the Red Sea, and Pharaoh in his chariot overwhelmed with the waters. This motto, rebellion to tyrants, is obedience to God. Mr. Jefferson proposed the children of Israel in the wilderness led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I proposed the choice of Hercules resting on his club. End quote. We commissioned an itinerant artist familiar with 
heraldic designs, uh, Monsieur Semtier, and what was finally agreed upon was a nauseous, disgusting cacophony of symbolism. But what would remain was a phrase which, I am proud to say, still binds us together today. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. Congress, understandably, saw the design, hated it, and went ahead and tabled that conversation. And it would be six years before it would finally be codified by Charles Thompson, Secretary of Congress, into the seal we know today. The bald eagle, olive branch in one set of talons, thirteen arrows in the other. And here we arrive at the point I intended to originally make. And I thank you, dear listener, for letting me take another rather roundabout and foul tangent at getting at it. For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen as the representative of our country. He's a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living, honestly. You may have seen him perched on some dead tree where, too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk. And when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish and is bearing it to the nest with the support of its mate and young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. With all this injustice, he is never in good case. But like those among men who live by sharping and robbing, he is generally poor and often very lousy. Besides, he's a rank coward. The little king bird, not bigger than a sparrow, attacks him boldly and drives him out of the district. He's therefore by no means a proper emblem for the brave United States of America. In truth, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird. And withal, a true original native of America. Eagles have been found in all countries, but the turkey was peculiar to ours. The first of the species seen in Europe, being brought to France by the Jesuits from Canada and served up at the wedding table of Charles the Ninth. He is besides, though a little vain and silly, tis true, but not the worst emblem for that, a bird of courage. And would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. Revisiting that 1784 letter to my dear Sarah, where I mentioned the above sentiment, inspires me to speak at greater length on the meat and matter contained within that aforementioned letter. Uh, but such a thing might be better suited for another episode, so we'll, we'll continue it on the next installment. Now then... What lesson can be derived from today's installment? What spark of ingenuity can be channeled to better power the machinations of your mind? The general foundation of my study upon electricity is built upon the premise that an object holds both positive charge and repels negative charge. Both are requisite, both are necessary. Now, who's to say what my posterity may discover of this phenomenon? Uh, will it ever have any practical purpose outside of parlor tricks? Uh, my suspicion is that it will. I call it a subtle hunch, dear listener. But I wonder, my dear listener, if we transpose this sentiment upon ourselves, if we might find certain inspiration, a vessel that is positively charged will hold fire. <laughs> so I conjure you, dear listener, to hold that positive charge in all your endeavors. Repel the negative. And if you do, you too can snatch lightning from the sky. 
Question always how you choose to represent yourself to the wider world. Surround yourself with symbols that will inspire mankind to re-examine your virtues with greater zeal and inspire the world to chase those ideals with electric passions. Never be afraid to reinvent yourself and in a world in constant flux, be bold enough to change with it. Always remember, beloved listener, your business is to shine. And, in a world filled with eagles, defy to be a turkey. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day. But as always, we have nothing but time between us. Oh, by St. Booger and all the saints at the backside door of purgatory, I nearly forgot, dear listener. I'm so thankful for the indulgence of your company and attention in this, in our little endeavor, that we here, at Let's Be Frank, want to pass this favor forward in kind. We're undertaking our first listener giveaway to the first among you to rise to my preceding challenge. At some point in next week's episode, I shall share a certain excerpt of wisdom of one Mr. R. Sanders uh, from Poor Richard's Almanac. The first listener who writes to me at inquiries at bfranklinlive.com with the date of that particular entry will receive, by the post, a book from my very own library to grace the happy shelves of your own. This contest I undertake purely out of the gratitude and affection I carry for you, my intellectual junto, and most assuredly not as a method to coerce you to continue listening to these little fireside chats we share together. And as we close, I hope I may again offer this solicitation. We here at Let's Be Frank are always looking for opportunities to travel. Franklin visited two continents and countless states in his lifetime, and here in 2023 he wants to visit you. If you wish for a live presentation with the good doctor at your theater, school, or event, simply write to the email address inquiries at bfranklinlive.com and my associates will make good to set up an appointment post-haste. Resource materials and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe, and stay up to date with the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review, and spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now... Dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. This season of Let's Be Frank is just shaping up, and we're working diligently behind the press to prepare all the miscellany, research, and history your appetites can stomach. Coming up, we'll be preparing an entire series of episodes devoted to the philosophy that inspired the Declaration of Independence, discussing the committees of correspondence as we begin the 250th anniversary of that revolutionary event, and having some hard conversations about the institution of slavery and its impact in the modern world. I'm so pleased to be on this journey with you. That's all for now, dear listener. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends. No turkeys were harmed in the recording of this episode.